Morning. Uh, we're going to be in the fifth chapter of Matthew, so if you want to go ahead and make your way there, we'll get to the, our, our base scripture in, in just a couple of minutes. Um, does anybody ever still have this in their house? Uh, I know most of us may have graduated to LEDs or, or something else, but the light bulb has been called maybe the most important invention of all. I'm sure you could argue the wheel, uh, personal computer, the automobile, but just before the turn of the 20th century and into the 20th century, the light bulb probably did as much to usher in the Industrial Revolution as any single invention. By the early 1900s, light bulbs had started to make their way into homes. That increased productivity, it increased home comfort, and it began to give people the notion that I may even be able to work at home. That's amazing. It's amazing. The product of the human mind, obviously inspired by God. You have this wire filament that heats up to the point that it glows. You have this circuitry of wires that provides the current, and then you have the socket at the end and this glass bulb that gives the connection. It's an incredible product of the human mind. You know, Thomas Edison gets credit for inventing the light bulb, but more accurately, he probably should be described as the perfecter. Um, a lot of people had a run at the light bulb in the years before Edison's edition, but he managed to do it in a way that allowed it to become mass-produced. And boy, were they. By the early 1900s, millions were in circulation. Just an incredible invention that God allowed to bless us with. In fact, some may argue that it was too good. Somewhere around 1920, the average lifespan of a well-produced incandescent light bulb was about 2,000 hours. Now, life in 1920 was not the same as it is today, 100 years later. And you may have one in your home. If you did, you probably did not burn your light bulb any more than an hour, if that much. So, do the math. One light bulb could last you six or seven years. Around that time, there were four leading producers in the world of light bulbs. There was GE, there was Philips, which was based in the Netherlands, there was Osram from Germany, and some people argue on the last one, but from what I was able to gather, there was a, a business called the Light Company in France that was number four. And business, as you can imagine, had been booming, but since light bulbs were lasting, Longer and longer, guess what? Fewer repeat customers. Business started to suffer. In fact, Osram reported selling uh, 63 million light bulbs in 1922, but in 1923, they only sold 28 million. This is a problem. So, in 1924, the four leading bulb makers gathered in Geneva, Switzerland not Alabama, and came up with a plan. 
if all the leading trusted bulb makers would just get together and decide they were going to make a light bulb that did not last as long, you could have a lot of repeat customers. Make a light bulb that fails quicker, and you can sell more. Everybody gets richer that way if we can just all agree to do it. So they did. They all instructed their leading engineers to begin producing a light bulb that would fail after a thousand hours of use. They were able to check each other's work. They were able to look in on what their other competitors' engineers were doing and cross-check each other's work to make sure nobody was building too good of a light bulb. It was a pretty ambitious agreement between the companies, and it later became known as the Phoebus Cartel. And this cartel had a stranglehold on the light bulb business for more than a decade, about 14 years. It was quite a coup. Combined, the companies reported selling almost 100 million more light bulbs in 1930 than they did in 1926, which is quite a coup. Over the next several years, technology increased and the world changed and the ability to build a brighter and more lasting light bulb just got better and better. But the cartel was able to keep a stranglehold on the light bulb business for the most part all the way up until the late 1930s. And remember, they got together in 1924. Oh, by the way, during that time, guess what? They charged you more for a light bulb that failed sooner. Does that ring a bell with anybody? <laughs> but as the Second World War loomed, and it was just a, a little bit away, the companies that had gotten together back in 1924 started to get a little bit suspicious of each other. The patent that GE had on the bulb expired, and they didn't necessarily want to share information anymore with Ostrom in Germany, who was getting ready to ransack Europe. So that's how the cartel eventually came down. It did, however, become a well-known example of something called planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence, where something is led to purposely fail before it should. Why do I tell you this story? Do you know that the Bible describes the Christian as light? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through us, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to illuminate this world brightly with our words, our actions, and the way we live. If you have a moment, I want you to stand. We're going to read the fifth chapter of Matthew, verses 14, 15, and following. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can completely rely on it in all things. Thank you that you have described us so that we can live out what it is you have for us. We pray that you would be with this time, Lord. We pray that if there's anything that is of me, it wouldn't be heard by anyone at all. But what is of you, Lord? Uh, help it to resonate. 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We love you. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. You were designed specifically by God to shine, to beam the radiance of God himself through his son. But I also want to tell you something else. There's a cartel that works in conjunction with each other to try to get your light to fail. And you need to know who this cartel is. It's very important that you identify the cartel so that you can understand what the cartel is trying to do. So first, I want us to look at the cartel. The first member of the cartel is Satan. Billy Graham said this about Satan. Don't think of Satan as a harmless cartoon character with a red suit and a pitchfork. He's very clever and powerful. And his unchanging purpose is to defeat God's plans at every turn, including his plans for your life. Satan is a literal figure. He is not an archetype that has been created in our minds to identify ultimate evil. Uh, He is not something that has been uh, made up so that we can keep kids in line. He is real. Biblical authors, divinely inspired by God, wrote about Satan as a literal figure. In the Gospels, we see Jesus was literally tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He's real, and we would do well to understand that because sometimes I think we don't think of him as real. I think if we did, we might live differently. Satan would like nothing better than your effectiveness as a Christian to fall into planned obsolescence. First member of the cartel. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he's extremely effective when you don't see him coming. That's why Peter says, some translations you may have in yours says, Be watchful. Mine says, Be sober-minded. That's why Peter says, Be watchful. All Satan needs to do is to get you to dim your light so it doesn't shine as bright as you were created to shine. And I'm not sure that the Phoebus cartel had a leader between those four companies, but if this cartel has a leader, it's most certainly Satan. Second member of the cartel, Satan's demons. The Bible says that when Lucifer or Satan fell from heaven, that he took others with him. And they work at his bidding. They're real as well. They're real. In many places, Scripture tells us that there are impure spirits that work to oppress the believer or in the context that we're speaking today to dim the light of the believer. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Maybe... The work of the demons can be overt and shocking. We know that that is certainly possible. We see some very shocking examples in Scripture. But most of the time, they work to deceive, just like Satan. I'd recommend to you, if you haven't read it before, a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It's It's a fictional account, but it illustrates something very true. It's a fictional account of a series of letters written by a chief demon 
to his underling who is trying to gradually work on someone that he has been assigned to that is a new believer. And without spoiling the whole book, the best advice that can be given by this chief demon who's been at it a while to this underling demon who has a new Christian assigned to him is to gradually, slowly, subtly dim the light of the new Christian. So I want to ask you to do a light check in your own life. Are you burning as bright as you were designed? Could you have been dimmed and you don't even realize it? Demons are real. Jesus cast out many during his ministry here on earth. They're powerful, but they're not more powerful than Jesus. They must obey him and it is important that we do not believe we can overcome the oppression caused by Satan and his demons without the Spirit working on our behalf. It's very important. Final member of the cartel, our sin nature. Our sin nature. Satan, his demons, and our sin nature work together to make our light burn not as bright as we were designed. The Bible says sin came into the world through the original choice of Eve and Adam, and since then we're born in a way in which we're predisposed to make decisions that go against what God has determined is best for us. And the only way that we can overcome that is through God's Son. It's the only way. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when... And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What are we lured and enticed by? Our own desire. Our sin nature causes our light to dim. Would you agree with me that we probably never lived in any more of a victim mentality than we do now? Everybody wants to play that card, it seems like. And I think Christians can become professionals at being able to spot it in everybody else. But if we're not careful, we won't see that creep into our lives if we're too busy trying to find it in everybody else. It's easy to point to this group over here and find it. It's easy to point to that group over there and find it. But if we look closely, it's probably a little bit closer to home than we would care to admit. And we want to blame a lot of different factors for our poor choices, but James is clear that we're lured away by our own desire. So, Satan, his demons, and our own sin nature causes our light to dim. But the solution is in the very next verses after the ones we just read in James 1, 14 and 15. If you stay in James 1 and go to 16 and 17, James says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I don't think there's any accident there that James described Father as the Father of lights. It's only through him that we can shine the way we were created to shine. Why are we the light of the world? Because we have a constant. We have a constant. 
the Father of lights. He doesn't vary. It is only through him that we are light. In fact, think of yourself as a reflector because that's what we are. We are reflecting God's Son when we put our faith and trust in him. Our light that shines is a reflection of him. It's not anything that we do on our own. Why are we the light of the world? So that, so that the world can see our good works. So that. And we're going to see that more and more as we move on in our time together this morning. In the time we have left, I, I want you to know what your father thinks of you. I want you to know who you are and why you're here. You were not created to be a dim bulb. I want to give you three descriptors, descriptors of us, three descriptors of God's creation. This is who God says we are if we put our faith and trust in him. And I could have picked from dozens. God has given us a great picture of who we are in him. The question is, do we reflect that? Do we reflect that? These descriptors I'm going to give you don't have qualifiers. They are not dependent on whether we are having a good day or a bad day. They aren't dependent on what side of the tracks we were born on. They're not even dependent on what hemisphere we were born in. They're not dependent on what type of government we live under. We are who God says we are because God said that's who we are. And that's all we need to know. So, who does God say you are? Number one, we're a masterpiece. We are a masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are crafted by God himself. In some translations, workmanship can be translated as masterpiece. If God designed you, he's not going to design anything but the best. We're a masterpiece. That should make for a pretty bright light. Ephesians 2.10 says we're crafted by God for good works. We're a masterpiece for good works. Matthew 5, which we began with this morning, says there were lights so that the world may see our good works. So let me ask you again as we're on this journey this morning. When the world looks at you, what do they see? What do they see? Someone whose good works shine brightly and is an accurate description of who God says we are or someone who pretty much looks just like everybody else. And if we're not fulfilling Matthew 5 and we're not fulfilling Ephesians 2, then we're in violation of Scripture. And that's not a place that we want to be. Our light should be shining brightly. We're a masterpiece. Second, we're called royalty. Royalty. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How's that for an explanation? 
Once you were not a people, now you are a people. That's a light being off and then on, shining gloriously bright. Why are we royalty? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of him. That's why. That's why. Is that what people see when they see you? A masterpiece, royalty. Finally, what else does God describe us as? More than conquerors. More than conquerors. Romans 8.37 says, Nope, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors through what? You can look this up when you have a moment, but if, if you look at that verse in Romans 8.37 and you look just a few verses up, Paul asks some rhetorical questions. Just a few verses above that, and here they are. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All of those questions are asked right before he calls us more than conquerors. This is who we are. It is not based on whether you feel like light or a masterpiece or royalty or more than conquerors. It is who you are because it is God who has said that is who you are. Each of these scriptures that we've talked about this morning denotes distinction. When the world looks at us, they should see something distinct. So that we're proclaiming the excellencies of him who we put our faith and trust in. We are, we're doing good works so that the world may see who he is. That's why we're here. We're not perfect, right? We're not perfect. But if our pattern of how we live does not reflect who God says we already are, we're in violation of Scripture. We're in violation of Scripture. That's not a good place to be. So, in the time we have left, how do you allow yourself to become what God designed you to be? And this is what we'll finish with this morning. Number one, do what your flesh tells you not to do. Do what your flesh tells you not to do. Romans 8.5 says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. And I know this is easier said than done. You know, Paul said, the very things that I need to be doing, I, I don't find myself doing. And the very things that I know I don't need to do are the very things I find myself doing. And if Paul says it, then I think we can all relate that, that we're not perfect. And I know that it's easier said than done. So we have to exercise the fruit of the Spirit. We have to exercise it. Sometimes we are going to have to go against what our flesh tells us to do. We're going to have to nurture that in our lives. It may not all of a sudden sprout tomorrow, but we've got to, if it's not in our lives, we've got to start somewhere, right? This requires getting out of your comfort zone. Your flesh may get all out of sorts when an opportunity to present itself to have a gospel conversation with somebody happens. Your hands may get sweaty and your breathing may get shallow, and why would that happen? Who would not want you to have a gospel conversation with somebody? The cartel. The cartel. God only desires your willingness 
The spirit draws the soul. Not our intellectual savviness. And I'm all for gaining as much knowledge as possible. And I know that God can use that. But at the end of the day, God just wants your willingness. Thank goodness we don't have to do the heavy lifting. The spirit draws the soul. Do what your flesh tells you not to do. Sometimes we just have to step out and act in a way that's different than how we feel. And that can be a hard thing sometimes. But Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, had a very human emotion. He did not want to carry out what God had planned for him, but he said, not my will, yours. We need to daily be saying, not my will, but yours. Do what your flesh tells you not to do. Number two, do the little things. Do the little things. James 3, 3 through 6 says this. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. These things are only little to us because we don't have the foresight of eternity. We may think it's little, but in God's economy, it's really not. We may think a little stone about this size is little, but God used it to topple a giant. We may think that a couple of little coins held by a widow is small, but God used it to tell a wonderful story about what it really means to sacrifice. We may think that a mustard seed is pretty doggone small. But God said it can move a mountain. Little things pointed in the direction of positive and not negative can make a big difference. Can make a big difference. If I gave you the option of a million dollars in a month, or if I gave you a penny at the beginning of the month and said I'm going to double it tomorrow, and then whatever that is, I'm going to double it the next day, and then whatever that is, I'm going to double it the next day, which would you rather have, the million dollars at the end of the month or a penny starting at the beginning of the month doubled every day? If you took the penny option at the end of the month, you'd have $5,368,709.12. We only think things are little. In God's economy, it's not so much. Not so much. These are the things that allow us to burn the brightest. You never know in your mind, what the smallest, seemingly insignificant thing can mean in the life of a person, whether it's a text or a phone call or an honest-to-goodness conversation. There have been numerous times when just a simple word or text from someone has buoyed me in an otherwise dreary day. Do the little things. Number three, you have a choice. Choose positive Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What do you think about most of the time? You don't often have a choice of your circumstances, but you do have a choice of how you react to those circumstances. If you want to be the light, you want to be who God says you are, choose positive. 
It's contagious. Think about that for a second. If, if just us assembled here today, if we just took one, two, and three, acting counter to our flesh, doing the little things, and choosing positive, imagine if we just committed that that would be us every single day for the next month, what a difference that can make. For the kingdom, it would create a light, uh, a light that shines pretty doggone brightly. Uh, this past week, it was relatively late in the evening. It was well after 8 o'clock, and I don't usually eat that late, but we had a, we had a softball game that night, and so I, I ran by a fast food place to get something, and I'm hot, and I'm sweaty, and I just want to go home. So I ran by a fast food place. I placed my order, and I almost immediately realized I'd made a mistake. There were, there were three or four cars, I can't remember, three or four cars in front of me, and the line just was not moving. It was not moving at all. And fast food was not going to be fast. And I'd already placed my order, and I just wanted to be home. And it wasn't going anywhere. And I could see the people in front of me shifting in their car, and they were, they were obviously frustrated. And it wasn't going anywhere. And finally, when the line would move, after about 10 or 12 minutes, I could see what apparently looked like the people in the car giving the lady at the drive-thru a piece of their mind. And I just wanted to be home. I was not in the best frame of mind. But I realized as I got closer, I had a choice. I had a choice. I could go one way or the other. And so when I got up to the line, the, the lady there in the drive-thru said, I'm so sorry we're, we're, that you're having to wait. And I said, it's okay. And she said, I hate to tell you this, but we just had to drop some fries, so it's going to be a little bit longer. And I said, that's all right. And so after a few minutes, uh, she came back with my order, and she handed it to me, and she said, I apologize again. And I said, hot fries are worth the wait. Thank you so much. And this grin came across her. She had probably just been given the riot act by three or four people. I had a choice. I had a choice. That may have gotten her through to closing. That one comment may have gotten her through. We have a choice. My flesh was telling me to do something else. It was something little. I chose positive. I had a choice. I took a flight not too long after 9-11. And I don't even remember where I was originally, but I was in Atlanta waiting for my connecting flight back to Dothan. It was the last connecting flight back to Dothan in the evening, and that's back when I think there were six flights in, uh, back to Dothan. So as you can imagine, it was pretty late in the evening. And there were about 30-something of us on the plane, and we were getting ready to taxi out on the runway to get to Dothan. And before we begun our taxi, the flight attendant came in and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to deplane. So we, we did. And as it turned out, the workers had counted one more bag in checked baggage than was accounted for by the passengers. So you can see after the worst terrorist attack in 
on American soil ever that if we've got a bag that's not accounted for on a plane, that's not a good thing. So they, they took all the bags off the plane. They took us off the plane and back to the boarding area to start all over again. They printed off a fresh manifest and began checking us in again at the pre-boarding area one by one and double-checking the number of bags that were accounted. And so when I got off the plane, I got back in line. I was about halfway in line. And so when it got my turn, I went up there, and I had my license in my hand, and I had my ticket. We still had paper tickets then, and I handed them my license and handed them my ticket. And the man that was behind the counter looked at my ticket and looked at my license and looked at the manifest and looked at me. And he looked back down at the manifest, and he looked at me again. I mean, his eyes were getting a little big. I'm like, I mean, I'm, it looks like me on the license. And he said, he looked at me and said, you're already on the plane. <laughs> Most people that know me understand I am a pretty chill guy. I'm, I really am. And even though it had been a long day of traveling, and even though I was a little weary from all that, and even though now it was really late in the evening, I took all that in stride, and I assumed that within 10 or 15 seconds, he would, he would understand what most assuredly had happened, that he had, in error, crossed my name off the manifest when he was checking somebody in before me. I mean, that's pretty obvious. That's, that's what had happened. Mistakes happen. We all make them. And once he caught the air, we could continue the process and get on the plane and get back to Dothan, but that didn't happen. <laughs> he was adamant that he had checked me in. And he repeated the same line. You're already on the plane. It's, it's at this point that I kind of step back for a second and kind of take stock of my situation and And made sure that, in fact, I was not already on the plane. <laughs> I was, in fact, standing at the pre-boarding counter with license and ticket, waiting to be checked in. Even as weary as I was, I was most sure of the fact that I was not already on the plane. This prompted a summit meeting behind the pre-boarding counter. And it was at that time I realized this wasn't going to get solved as easy as I thought it was. So the man's boss looked at me, looked at my license, looked at my ticket, looked at the manifest with my name crossed off of it, and then they huddled again. It, now I'm not quite as chill as I was. Not quite as chill as I was. I, I don't know about you, but I watch all these crazy documentaries on television. I know people get falsely accused all the time. And I, am I about to get carted off and interrogated in some room? Am I going to wind up on some list? I, that's all going through my mind at this time. And keep in mind, there, there are weary people behind me in line that are now looking at me with suspicion. So I, I probably waited longer than most people would before I said the obvious I said, it, it seems pretty clear that my name was crossed off in error. I'm not on the plane, as you can see. 
So this helped in no way. (laughs) That didn't get me any closer to being where we needed to be. So the summit meeting went on for a few more minutes, and now I'm I'm getting a little bit perturbed. And I I literally said this. I'm I'm up at the pre-boarding counter, and the meeting's going on, and I literally said this, which loud for me, when I, for me, you have to take that into account. But I, I literally said, I'm me. I'm me. Is it not clear to everyone here that I am me? That seemed to help in no way. What they ended up having to do was the people that were already on the plane, back off the plane. Another fresh manifest, get in line, we're going to put this guy on the plane first. All the bags were accounted for and eventually we made our way back to Dothan in the middle of the night. So frustrating. I stood there and got pretty indignant over the fact that I had all the evidence pointing to the fact that I was indeed me, to no avail. That is very frustrating. But you know what's worse? Imagine being created by God with certain descriptors that identify you, your light, your masterpiece, your royalty. You are more than a conqueror. And imagine your creator crafting you in such a way that this is how you are to be identified to a world that doesn't know Christ. And then imagine your life being lived in such a way that these descriptors are totally unrecognizable in you. That's exactly what the cartel wants. Satan, his demons, and your sin nature. That's not who we are when we live in a manner different than how God has made us. We can do something about it. Do what your flesh tells you not to do. Do the little things. You have a choice. Choose positive. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, your word is true completely. You are completely reliable in all things. If you have described us as these things, that is who we are. Lord, all we need to do is just live in a manner in a way that you've already created. You've gone before us for the good works. You have done everything. Lord, do not allow us to fall into the, what the cartel wants. Help us to be the light that the world can see, Lord. That's why we're here. We've got just one life. Lord, I pray that this would be a, a wake-up call for us, that we would do those things that you would have us do, and we would be exactly what you created us to be. We love you. We praise in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Invitation is simple. If that hasn't been you, and you know it, and you know you need to do business with God, do it. Whether that means coming to the altar and taking care of business there, or whether that means at your seat, wherever, 
Also, maybe you're listening and you said, you know what? I don't even know what any of that means. I've never had a relationship with Christ. We can take care of that right now as well. That's the first step in being what God has designed you to be. As the choir sings, you have business to do with God, do it.